0: Um, Right now we're going to read from a part of the Bible called Luke, which is one of the accounts of Jesus' life and teaching and ultimately his death and resurrection. And we're looking in Luke chapter 15 at a story that Jesus told. So from verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father. Father. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Well, before we um, get into the passage for this morning,
1: there are just a couple of people I want to thank. Uh, the first one is the band. This morning, um, they had to work out what to do without a keyboard before it arrived. And they started with the school piano and then just decided to pivot and keep the school piano. So I want to say well done to Chelsea and the team for that. Uh, yeah, I think that's worth a clap. I, um, I also feel like maybe because we're in a school hall, we should finish by singing the national anthem or something. Now that we've got the school's piano out and everything. Um, but I also wanted to thank you all just for being here on Father's Day morning and for taking out the time to be with us. And, uh, and if you are visiting, to take your morning, your Sunday morning, the first patch of good weather over this weekend, to actually be with us. But I think diving into God's Word in in Luke 15 is going to be a really worthwhile time. And it's pretty apt, um, given that we are on Father's Day, to be looking through this passage, because there's something that I've observed um, just recently. Maybe it's just my generation of men and younger, um, but it's something I've noticed, and it's come up in a few different areas. I've heard it in podcasts, but also just in conversations generally. Um, And it may just be my unique experience we live in a post-modern area where my personal experience is as important as universal truth anyway. So maybe it's just universally true. But I've I've noticed the theme that keeps coming up is that young men and women are terrified of becoming parents. I don't know if this has come up in your conversations as much as well. And it's not from a selfish fear of like, when I have kids, I'm going to miss out on all the good things of life or travel or career or this sort of stuff. I'm sure that's out there too. But there's a fear that having kids is gonna be this incredibly fraught affair and the terror is that we're gonna mess them up. That's what it is. Now, I don't know where this is coming from particularly. Part of it is, some of it is certainly an articulated fear that if you've had a difficult experience of your parents, the concern is that you're gonna replicate those same behaviors and kind of pass it on. But bad parents have been around since forever. And for generations past, I don't think there was this general fear about becoming parents. This seems to be something that's relatively new. I think what's happened is it used to be the case that parenting was viewed as like running a half marathon. It's very difficult, but anyone who wants to do it, if they put their mind to it, can do it. That was how it was sort of seen. Difficult, but anyone can do it. Now it's almost seen more as like bomb defusal, right? You have to be a certain type of personality, highly specialized and trained, and there is possible disaster on every side. And I think where this has come from is because as a culture we're so good at getting good at things and we optimize absolutely everything that it was only natural that parenting would kind of be the next sphere to optimize. And now because of advances in kind of science and psychology, we now know 50,000 new ways that you can mess your kids up. And so everyone is just like, it feels like bomb defusal. It's like you clip the green wire before the red, bang. You go too quick, bang. Too slow, bang, right? And on, on every, in every way, there are ways to mess up your kids. It feels like you get one shot, and if you mess it up, that's it, you're done. That's why you have multiple kids. It's like cakes. You burn the first one, you're like, oh, well, jog on, we go again. Better luck with the next one. But I think it's partly because I have three kids. That's not how, that's not why. I think the the bigger reason is at a worldview level in terms of our culture. I think as a a culture, as we've moved away from a Christian heritage and the gospel story as a whole, we've lost a sense of a story of redemption as being a part of our lives. And so the thought is you really get one shot to get it right, and if you don't get it right first go, well, that's it. Too bad, so sad. But in the gospel, what we see is that there is a chance at redemption because at the heart of the gospel message is this. We screwed up big time, and God comes in and redeems and saves. We made a huge mess of things, and God actually changes that and makes things new. The gospel is ultimately a story about second chances, a story about redemption and about renewal. And the story of grace of the gospel is one that when you apply it to the sphere of parenting, but not just parenting, but all of life, you can see that actually God can make things new that he can repair what was broken, he can fix what was damaged, he can change what was ruined. And with that, in one, I think it takes the terror out of parenting, because you know it's partly just trusting the God of grace. But secondly, more broadly, it shows us that we don't just get one shot and it's done. That actually things can get pretty bad in life, and God can use that in incredible ways to bring about new joys and new hope. And so as we dive into this story about a son and a father that Jesus tells that is a perfect story, we're going to see the extravagant grace of God on display. Let's pray together before we dive in. Father, we just thank you that your word is so rich, that in your word we understand your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus. And in this story of a wayward son, we see that you are a loving and good father who redeems and forgives. And Father, we pray that you would press this grace deep into our hearts and all for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, Jesus often told stories to communicate the gospel and he told many different stories to explain it in different ways. And this one is no different. The one we're looking at today is a relatively famous one that even if you are here and you didn't particularly grow up going to church or knowing people that went to church, you may have heard of the prodigal son You might have heard someone say offhand, oh, the return of the prodigal son. It's not a word that we use very often, but prodigal just means extravagant to the point of reckless. And it's a story about a son who, in many ways, spends extravagantly to the point of recklessness and finds himself in trouble. But the misnomer of this story being called the prodigal son is that as you dive into this story, as you'll see this morning, it's not actually really about the son. The focal point is the father. And it's not the extravagance and recklessness of the son ultimately that's going to be on display, but the extravagant forgiveness and grace of a loving father. But the story starts in this way. In, in Luke fifteen eleven, it starts and Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, everyone listening to the story in an ancient Near Eastern context at this point knows that Jesus is telling a fictional story to make a particular point. And the reason they know it's fictional is because no one in their right mind in the ancient Near East, no son or daughter, would ever ask for their inheritance early. It's rare even today, but it was was rare to the point of completely never, ever happening back then. And the reason for it is to dishonor your parents like that was considered unthinkable. In fact, if Jesus was telling the story accurately, he would have said, a man had two sons, one of them asked for his inheritance early, then the man had one son. And that's the end of the story. That was how it would really go in the ancient Near East. So when Jesus says, the dad then goes away, divides his property up, and gives the son his inheritance, they're all leaning into the story at this point, because they're like, this would never happen. Where is Jesus going with this? And this is good storytelling. Jesus often does it. He takes a scenario and a setting that's familiar to his hearers, and he just puts a twist in the story to kind of drag you along. But here, it starts with the son saying something that's deeply offensive. He's saying to his father, Dad, you are dead to me. I want your stuff, and I want it early, and I want it now. I don't want relationship with you. I want what you have. And not only that, it would have been deeply humiliating for the father. Because back then you didn't have a lot of liquid assets. If you wanted to give an inheritance early, you would have to go and get your physical property, divide it up and sell it. And so people in the community would be like, oh, I thought your farm was going great. Why are you selling off a portion of your land? And as people talk about it, they realize this guy's got a son who's asked for his inheritance early and he's giving it to him. So this is a humiliating request. But the father does it. Divides up his property and gives it to him. But even from there, the story gets rougher. In Luke 15:13, it says, Not many days later, the son gathered all he had. So he takes up everything that the father has given him. And it says, And he, he took a journey to a far country. So not only has this father lost part of his property, now he's lost relationship with his child. Now for many parents, or even people thinking about becoming parents, this is the nightmare scenario, isn't it? The idea that your, pa- your child would not want to speak to you anymore would go to a far-off context would leave the community and want your stuff and have nothing to do with you. This ultimately is many parents' fear. And here it happens to the dad. But not only that, it gets harder from here even. Look what happens. In Luke 15, 13 to 16, the son has gone off to a far off land, it says, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is a riches-to-rag story. It takes someone who's got their inheritance early, who has become young and wealthy suddenly, and he goes to a far-off land and completely squanders it, and within months he's hit rock bottom. He has no family connections, no significant friends. Now he has no money either. And he is at the very end of himself. And at this point, most of Jesus' listeners would have been like, ah, this is where you're going with the story. It's a cautionary tale. This is what happens when you abandon family. And you know, many, many societies that are more community-based than ours, that are not individual, tell these kind of stories to reinforce the idea that keeping to tradition and family is the right way to go. I remember reading of an old uh, Cambodian, I don't know what you call it, fairy tale, fable, that sort of thing. And it goes like this. A woman who was living in a village took her son out of the village to live in the mountains. And while she was there, her son became really sick. And a thief came along and saw that her son was sick and decided to trick her. So what he did was he said, uh, the reason that your son is sick is because there are spirits that have attached to him. And the way you can get rid of this is by putting him under the rice pestle in order to scare them off. Now the way this thing worked is it's like a seesaw and you stand on one end and as you jump up and down on it, it crushes the rice at the other end. And so he said, put the child under the other end and stand on this end. And she did that. And obviously at that point she can't move because the child's at the other end. And while she did that, he went and robbed her house and took everything and took off. And she was standing there for hours calling out for help until someone finally came and took the baby out of the other end of the, the pestle thing. And then from then on, the moral of the story was this. This is what happens when you leave the village. This is what happens when you leave family and relationships. You move outside of safety and bad things happen. And cultures will tell these stories over and over again. And don't forget, even as an individualistic culture, we still have Disney to give us our cautionary tales as well about being too family-oriented or too stuck in the community. But these stories are told over and over again as warnings. This is what happens when you break with tradition. And so at this point in the story, Jesus has told a story where a son does something despicable and then it gets worse for him and then look at the consequences. His life is an absolute mess. So everyone listening to the story at this point is like, Yes, Jesus, get them. Tell our wayward kids to keep your tradition. Obey your parents. Do what we say. But this is not going to be the point of Jesus' story. It's going to twist again. Because this story isn't actually about families and wayward kids. It's a story about us. Jesus is actually explaining here, not the story of wayward sons and their fathers, but our relationship to God, humankind and God. And what he's explaining, essentially, is what sin is. So most of us, when we hear the word sin especially if you haven't grown up in maybe a church context or something like that. But even if you have, our instinct is to think of it as breaking God's rules. But first and foremost, you see from this story that sin is actually breaking God's heart. It's a breaking relationship. So when we think of sin, we tend to think of it as like a a student-teacher relationship. There's a harsh teacher who doesn't really have anything personally on the line. It's not an actual relationship connection. And so breaking rules is more like rebelling against a difficult teacher. But now Jesus says, actually, it's more like kids walking away from their good parents. That's what it's more like. So we're meant to see in this son a picture of how each of us has related to God. And sin ultimately is when we say, God, I want your stuff. I want the thing that you've made, the stuff that you've made, and I don't want you. And sin doesn't insult the father. It doesn't necessarily sneak behind his back or steal from him or curse him or badmouth him. But it just shows a complete indifference towards him. God, the things you have made are the things that I really want, and I don't want relationship with you. I want to enjoy these things outside of relationship with you. And this is how often we live, avoiding God, and yet wanting the things that he provides. And we recognize that this idea of of using using people for their stuff rather than them isn't good. If you've ever experienced it, If you've ever been in a work context where you thought someone was your friend and it turned out they were just networking or using you in order to get a promotion or to get some new clients or whatever else it is, it feels dirty. We don't like being used. We don't like to find out someone is just in relationship with us to make someone else jealous. We don't like it when people want something from us but don't want relationship with us. So we understand it. But here Jesus is saying this is what it's like, what sin is actually like. That's our attitude towards God. Sin is saying that we want your stuff and we don't want relationship with you. And ultimately what this story tells is that life without connection to God doesn't ultimately satisfy. When we go about seeking the good life without God, we don't find it. It becomes elusive to us. In fact, the whole next series that we're looking at, particularly the first week, is how elusive meaning can be without a meaningful connection to the God who created the story that we're all living in. But we do find out that things don't satisfy. That We keep going after things only to find that that once we have them, they kind of lose all meaning. I remember speaking to an athlete who'd reached the the absolute peak of their field. And the day after they'd won a, a gold medal, was what they got to, they said they found it profoundly disorienting. And it wasn't just their experience, that many athletes experienced a similar thing. When you finally achieve the thing that you thought would bring you the most meaning, the next day feels very strange. Because all of life has been building up to just before that moment. And once you have it, it kind of feels like what's next. You either have to go again, and then again, and again, and again, and again. Or you realize this is it. This is as good as it gets. Life, The best moments of life have already just gone by, and they're not coming back again. When we try to live a life going after things that God has made without relationship or connection to Him to give them meaning and vitality and renewal, we find that they pass us by. Jim Carrey on this once wrote, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of just so they can see it's not the answer. So we are looking for deep meaning in life. And what Jesus says from this story here is that ultimately if we get everything we possibly want, and lose relationship with God, ultimately it won't satisfy. The sun gets all of this stuff and he, t- he heads off to a far land only to find that all of it is not enough to build a life upon. We're like a, a, a branch from a tree cut off or severed from our source that slowly is wilting and dying and passing away. And so in this story, after the sun hits rock bottom, he actually gets to the point of realizing, okay, I'm stuck. Things have gotten as bad as they possibly can. And so he comes up with a plan. He realizes at this point that his sin has cost him dearly. And so he comes up with a plan to return to his father. At this point, he's, he's eating so poorly that he's like, you know what, even, I can't go back and be a son. I guess that option is, kind of, is out of the picture now. But if I head back to my dad, I could maybe at least ask to be treated like one of his workers. Because even working for my dad would be better than working in the context that I'm in right now. And so this is the plan that he comes up with, and he heads back to his father, and he starts to think through a plan to do it. Look what it says in Luke 15:17 to 19. It says, "But when he came to himself, so this is his moment of clarity, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but after things have hit absolute rock bottom, having this kind of light bulb go off, he said, "How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father." And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So after this, he devises this plan and says, I'll go back to my dad. I'll admit everything I've done. I'll I'll take all the blame on myself. And I won't even ask to be a son again. I'm just going to be a servant, one of his workers, and just ask for that level of consideration. And while he's still rehearsing this speech in his head, look what happens. In Luke 15, 20... It says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and raced and embraced him and kissed him. No, he didn't race; he ran. It was still fast, though. The response of the father is dramatic, and again, this wouldn't have been lost on the original hearers. Men in the ancient Near East don't run; that's that's child's play. And you know what? There are many uh, other cultures where this is still the case. That once you graduate to adulthood as a man, you don't do childish things like run. But as he sees his son, he's so overwhelmed with compassion for him that he forgets all of his cultural sort of behaviors that he's supposed to be doing and just goes after him. And he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. And then the son kind of finds his senses again, almost a bit disoriented by the fact that his father has come out to him like this. And he kind of you can imagine him just sort of stepping back. And now he starts to rehearse his speech. Listen to what he says. And the son said to him, Father, it's like he's got his little like palm cards out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So you notice he gets only partway through his speech before the father interrupts. And he's like, enough of that. Forget that. He says, instead, we're going to throw a party. He says, we're going to kill the fattened calf. That was the, mo- that was the prized possession in agricultural culture. He says, we're going to put a ring on his hand. Potentially, that would be his father's ring. And if the, the best robe in the house is going to be his father's robe. And he says, let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. And so they party. I want to many people imagine that if there really is a God, and we really have sinned against that God, that to come back to him would be kind of like walking back in the house and his hands are on his hips and he's like, look who's come crawling back, yeah, after you tried to live life without me. But here, Jesus is saying, no, this is what the Father is like. He doesn't look down his nose at those who have returned to him. He loves his children whom he has made and embraces them with compassion. That the gospel that Jesus came to embody is that God loves his people and pours out his life. Because the truth is, real forgiveness is not cheap, is it? It's costly. When you forgive someone, it costs you something. In this, in this image of the Father, look how much it cost him to forgive his son. So not only does he forgive the debt, so he's given that inheritance early, he forgives the personal insult and the humiliation that came with that. But on top of that, if he welcomes his son back into the family, that means if he really is a son again, he's a part of the will, which means he's going to divide his property again amongst him. And not only that, but he throws this celebration for him, which costs him even more. Forgiveness is costly. And it's always the case, even in relationship, that if you forgive, it costs you. Because whenever you forego the payment for something done wrong against you, you bear the cost. We know this in every sphere of life. If you're a parent, you'll know that a fun adrenaline sport is your kids getting out of the car in a narrow car park. Because for whatever reason, they exit every vehicle like a SWAT team. They just kick the door, it's like the car's on fire. They kick the door open and charge out. So if you ever pull up to like a luxury vehicle, you just, the heart rate is way up. You're briefing the kids on the exit procedure constantly. Like, let me get out first so I can stand as a cushion between you and the door while I slam it into you. Anyway, on one of these occasions, it wasn't our kids' fault, they opened the door partially and in God's providence, a, a very localized gust of wind just came between our cars and grabbed the door and flung it straight into the car next to us. Now it wasn't, fortunately it wasn't like a Merck or anything like that, it was actually a pretty banged up car. And so the first suggestion from the kids was like, well you know that it's not like a really fancy car, like there really isn't much damage on there so you, you know it's not gonna be a big deal. And part of me was like, yeah, I kind of feel that too. But I, I realized I had to put my dad pants on at that point and be like, no, no, do the right thing. Look, I always leave a note, just so you know. But anyway. But on that occasion, we're like, nah, kids, we, ha- we have to leave a note because it's not our decision as to whether or not they would like to incur the cost of what we've done to their car. That now is for their assessment to make. If they want to forgive that and decide it's not a big deal and incur that, they can do it. But it's their, they have to be the ones to do that. And so we left our details on it. And in that particular instance, they did actually forgive it. And they they were actually more just marveled that anyone actually left their number there, which is a sad indictment on humanity. But anyway, but it certainly is the case that if if that happens to you and you decide to forego it, it's not for free, is it? Because you now incur the damage. Either when you resell it, you accept the loss of the resale value or you repair it and you pay for that. But any which way, when you forgive a debt, You take on the cost yourself. Jesus says in this story that forgiveness is costly. And he knows how much it's going to cost because he is there to embody the cost. That Jesus himself will lay down his life for our sin that we might find new relationship with God. That when he comes, he comes to demonstrate that he will pour out his blood on our behalf so that we can have relationship with God. Jesus embodies the cost of forgiveness. And in a story about fathers and sons, just think about how costly that is for the father to give up his son on the cross for sinners to find forgiveness. What a cost. This is the story of redemption in the gospel. This is the brilliance and beauty of the gospel. That God forgives and is gracious. And this transforms all of life, doesn't it? Because the truth is, once you've experienced grace, it actually leads you to be more gracious as a person. You know, Jesus, when he was teaching crowds, said to them the phrase, measure for measure. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. If you've ever had to do the Shakespeare play in English lit, it came from Jesus' story. When Jesus says, measure for measure, he says, The measure by which, uh, the measure by which you are judged is the measure by which you will judge. He says, the standard by which you live is the standard by which you will judge other people. And he says, if you judge others according to works, that is, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Then that's how you'll be treated. But he says, if you've experienced grace, then that's how you'll relate to other people as well. And grace isn't just looking past sin and saying, well, nothing really happened, it's no big deal. Grace is being able to look at something and say, that really was wrong, and yet I forgive And I can forgive because I've experienced forgiveness myself. See, Grace, getting back to our first question for dads here, is core to what it means to be a dad. That actually, if you've experienced forgiveness from the father, you can be a forgiving father. That doesn't mean that you're a perfect father who gets it right. You've got one shot to, to get your kids absolutely right. What it means is when you mess up, you can apologize. And when they mess up too, you can forgive. And you can model grace to them. That Actually, this is what parenting should be about. That fear-based parenting is crushing. Because if your hope is to shape your kids in such a way that they never make a mistake, you'll be following them with threats constantly. And not only that, but you'll exaggerate the threats of disobedience and exaggerate the consequences and all this kind of stuff. But grace means that you can be firm with boundaries and then be gracious with them when things go wrong. Because we know that redemption actually is possible. And this gives them such a robust way of understanding the world and living in a world that's broken by sin. Earlier this week, for the f- we had our first broken limb in our family. It wasn't my fault, I'm happy to say, nor Mel's. Um, but I got a call on Thursday afternoon from my mum, just saying that, um, that one of our, our kids, Asher, had been playing tips, had tripped over. And it hurt his arm pretty badly. And I could tell because I could hear it down the phone from the background. And, um, and we actually had like a pretty great afternoon. I'll also, if you, if you work in public health, just hats off to you. We had the best experience of a broken arm ever. So he did, he did great. Um, but the nurses and the doctors and everything were amazing through it. Um, but through this, through this experience, it's funny. When, when kids actually break something, the irony is that they learn that they're not that fragile. Because the body is actually pretty incredible. It's amazing how well the body can repair itself when something has gone wrong. And when kids actually break something, rather than becoming more afraid over the long term, they tend to become more bold because they learn, hey, things can actually things can break and then they can get put back together. What grace teaches us in relationships is that even though relationships aren't perfect, when they break, they can actually get put back together. And if kids don't understand this, they live their life in fear of of conflict because the belief is always when there's conflict, things break and they never come back together. People separate and they don't come together again. People have conflict and they go apart and they don't reunite. But grace teaches us that things can break and be repaired, that the relationship between God and humankind could be breached and broken and shattered and yet can be repaired and made new that there can even be new joys after repair, that there can be new depths of grace and mercy. We can teach kids a resilience by teaching them the gospel story. The reason we went through those, those questions with Jack and Eilish about building the word of God and the gospel into the life of Billy and James is because we want them to know from the start that there is a story that rules over all things, a story of redemption where things were broken and yet put back together. And not only that, but it means that there is hope. If you've experienced broken relationships and you know the gospel of grace, there is hope that there might actually be transformation, that a difficult relationship with a parent or a child might not always be that way, that if God could bridge the gap between us and Him, then He might start to work renewal in your relationships as well, that things that have come apart might actually come back together again, that there might be restoration. And not only that, but that within a church community, As you experience relationships that maybe do work, that are reparative, that were different to the ones you experienced in your family, you start to see that God does bring things back together. That maybe there was a difficult relationship with your parents, but in your new spiritual family, you find older mums and dads who model what it's like to be a grace-based parent. The truth is that the gospel story tells us that things can come back together, that there can be healing and there can be renewal. And Jesus makes it clear from this story that our God, our Father, our Heavenly Father is a forgiving dad. Let's pray that we live in light of this grace. Father, we are just amazed at the grace you have shown us in Jesus. As we see the depths of our sin and our wandering and our walking away from you and the cost it was to forgive, it was the blood of your son Jesus we're just amazed that you love us and father as we just contemplate the depths of the gospel we pray that it would transform us to be a people who are gracious and loving like you are that as we experience your forgiveness it would lead us to forgive as we experience your love it would lead us to love and as we experience your renewal and your redemption it would grant us hope not just for the future to come but that in this life, between now and when Jesus returns, that things can be renewed and changed. So I just pray for anyone here whose heart has been broken, that they would trust that you are a God of second chances and of renewal. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen your people by your Holy Spirit to trust deeply in the gospel. And we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.